the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. We welcome as our guest today, Summer. As I speak, it is the summer solstice. We will also hear from St. Augustine of Hippo, who died in 430 A.D., to help us think about the year and the meaning of the calendar. We will also hear some poetry about summer. Let's get right to work. That golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind As I speak, it is the summer solstice, the first day of summer in the northern hemisphere. A solstice from the Latin words sol, meaning sun, and the verb sistocistere, meaning stand or stop, is the day occurring twice a year when in its gyrations around the sun, the tilt of the earth's axis is the most inclined towards or away from the sun at an angle of 23 degrees, 26 minutes. And that means that for uh, the summer solstice, at least, Today the sun is at its highest point in the sky at solar noon, and the day is at its longest. For southerners, of course, it is at its shortest. But because the church's early development was in the northern hemisphere, much of our theological reflection about the solstice is connected to our liturgical calendar. For example, in the deep midwinter when frosty winds make moan and In the north, at least, the earth stands hard as iron and water like a stone. We have the Feast of St. Lucy, from the Latin word for light, lux, lux lucis. Because we are longing for the light to return to us, we celebrate the Feast of St. Lucy. And right on cue, then we come to the winter solstice, near the time of the Feast of the Birth of Christ, who is our light, and At that time of year, the days start to get longer. We celebrate the sun unconquered, the sol justitiae, the sun of justice. That's S-U-N, not S-O-N, even though we can call the sun justice itself. Now, during the summer, we have the feast of St. John the Baptist, which is close to the summer solstice, when the days get shorter again, harking, of course, to St. John's famous phrase, one of the most beautiful things he said. That is, he, meaning Christ, must increase, I must decrease. So this is the turning point of the year when our days begin to get shorter. There is a sermon in the body of the sermons of St. Augustine of Hippo which addresses this point, and we can hear some of it. St. Augustine spoke often about John the Baptist as the voice of, of Christ's word. Now here is a little bit of Sermon 380 in the Augustinian Opus, preached 
in a year that we can't quite figure out. As a matter of fact, this sermon might not actually be a sermon of Augustine. It could be something assembled from other pieces. Still, it is very Augustinian in its spirit and content. Let's hear a little bit of Sermon 380. While you are listening, keep your ears tuned to how Augustine moves from what got John the Baptist killed to the issue, as it were, of the generation of and the birth of the church. Anius camus ergo, hec duo et in ipsa differentia passionum. Legimus Ioannem passum martyrium pro veritate. Numquid pro Christo? Non pro Christo, si non veritas Christus. Non omnino pro ipsius nomine, sed tamen pro ipsa veritate. Neque enimideo decollatus est Ioannes, quia confessus est Christum. Sed monebat temperantiam, monebat justitiam, dicebat, non tibi licet habere uxorem fratris tui. So let us recognize these two things in the very differences of Christ's and John's deaths. We read that John suffered martyrdom for the truth. Was it for Christ? It wasn't for Christ if Christ isn't truth. It certainly wasn't for his name, and yet it was for truth itself. I mean, the reason John was beheaded, after all, was not that he had confessed Christ, but he was urging self-control. He was urging justice. He was saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The law, you see, which had commanded this, had also commanded about those who died without children, that brothers should take the wives of their brothers and raise up seed for their brothers. Where this reason was lacking, the only motive was lust. It was this lust that John was rebuking, a chaste man rebuking an incestuous one, because this too is what he represented. It is necessary for him to grow but for me to diminish. The commandment had already been given that if any one died without seed, his closest relation should take his wife and raise up seed for his brother. After all, why had God commanded this, if not to signify in this way that the brother's seed was to be raised up to the brother's name? The commandment, you see, was that the child to be born would have the name of the deceased, Christ was deceased. The apostles took his spouse, the church. Those whom they begot of her, they did not name Paulians or Patrians, but Christians. So let both their deaths also speak of these two things. It is necessary for him to grow, but for me to diminish. The one grew on the cross, the other was diminished by the sword. Their deaths have spoken of this mystery. Let the days do so too. Christ is born, and the days start increasing. John is born, and the days start diminishing. So let man's honor diminish, God's honor increase, so that the honor of man may be found in the honor of God. Nomen haberet defuncti. Defunctus est Christus. Acciperunt 
coniungem eus apostoli ecclesiam. Quosti illa genuerunt non Paulianus aut Petrianos, sed Christianos nomineverunt. Loquantur ergo hec duo ambe passiones, illum portet crescere, me autem minui. Ille crebit in ligno, hic est diminutus in ferro. Locute sunt et passiones hoc mysterium, loquantur et dies. Nascitur Christus et augentur, nascitur Ioannes et minuuntur. Minuatur ergo honor hominis, augeatur honor Dei, ut honor hominis inveniatur in honore Dei. That was Sermon 380 from the body of Augustine's sermons, whether it was written directly by him or not, or uh, whether it was uh, you know assembled from other pieces. It's certainly Augustinian in theology and spirit and language. And you can hear how Augustine made the connection between the change of seasons and the births of John the Precursor and Christ the Messiah. He did it very deftly. So in nature, in the northern hemisphere, the days are now, now quite obviously going to get shorter. And this is a cycle of life which is reflected in our liturgical calendar and our feasts. Well, without a whole lot of preamble here, let's just dig into some poetry for the summer. I like to read some poetry in these podcasts at the change of seasons and in the middle of seasons and at the end of seasons. Uh, I find uh, the poetry that taps into something deep in the human spirit that connects us to the rhythm of life that God built into our world and therefore into our lives. There are seasons to the world turning around the sun, and there are seasons to our lives as well. John Clare, who died in 1864, was a brilliant poet, wrote about the countryside. He had many mental and emotional problems, but he is able to paint a beautiful picture of a moment in his poetry. This poem, called Summer Evening, seems to underscore the fact that because of the fall of man, because of the, the sin of the whole human race and our first parents, we are all now at odds, in a sense, with the rest of the world, which God intended us to guide with a benign stewardship. But, of course, something is now amiss. We don't always get along with everything around us. Here is Summer Evening by John Clare. The frog, half fearful, jumps across the path, and little mouse that leaves its hole at eve nimbles with timid dread beneath the swath. My rustling steps awhile their joys deceive, till past, and then 
the cricket sings more strong, and grasshoppers in merry moods still wear the short night weary with their fretful song. Up from behind the molehill jumps the hare, cheat of his chosen bed, and from the bank the yellow hammer flutters in short fears from off its nest hid in the grass's rank, and drops again when no more noise it hears. Thus nature's human link and endless thrall, proud man still seems the enemy of all. William Blake, who died in 1827, was the fantastic visionary poet and artist of the Romantic period in England. He wrote a series of poems to the seasons, all of them tied into a strange mythology about passions and energies and experience and innocence and so forth. All the poems are about desire and fulfillment and even about the ages of man. Well, this poem, To Summer, is the attempt of the impassioned poet who wants to persuade summer personified to linger a little while with them in their otherwise cold place, I suppose, considering what the weather is often like in England. They want summer to stay with them as long as possible. Uh, in a classical way, the poet recounts the advantages of staying around their area and that they do not lack comforts or pleasures or ways to honor summer if he would only stay for a while. To Summer by William Blake O thou who passest through our valleys in thy strength, curb thy fierce steeds, allay the heat that flames from their large nostrils. Thou, O Summer, oft pitchest here thy golden tent, and oft beneath our oaks hast slept, while we beheld with joy thy ruddy limbs and flourishing hair. Beneath our thickest shades we oft have heard thy voice, when noon upon his fervid car rode o'er the deep of heaven. Beside our springs sit down, and in our mossy valleys, on some bank beside a river clear, throw thy silk draperies off and rush into the stream. Our valleys love the summer in his pride. Our bards are famed who strike the silver wire. Our youth are bolder than the southern swains, our maidens fairer in the sprightly dance. We lack not songs nor instruments of joy, nor echoes sweet, nor waters clear as heaven, nor laurel wreaths against the sultry heat.
Carl Sandburg, who in 1967, in his poem Summer Stars, reminds us that summer isn't just about days, but also about nights. And where I am, it's dark enough that the stars at times seem to hang just overhead. And when it is still, perhaps you can catch the strain of the music of the spheres. Some people thought in ancient and medieval times that The moving of the crystalline spheres of heaven made their music. Others think it might have been perhaps a case of tinnitus causing the sound they heard. I like the medieval explanation better. Here's Summer Stars by Carl Sandburg. Bend low again, night of summer stars. So near you are, sky of summer stars, so near, a long-arm man can pick off stars, pick off what he wants in the sky bowl. So near you are, summer stars, so near, strumming, strumming, so lazy and hum-strumming. Speaking of summer and night, here is Bed in Summer by Robert Louis Stevenson, who died in 1894. With the days so long, uh, compounded by daylight savings time, it is hard sometimes to force oneself, or I imagine for parents, to force children to go to bed at this time of year. In winter, I get up at night and dress by yellow candlelight. In summer, quite the other way. I have to go to bed by day. I have to go to bed and see the birds still hopping on the tree, or hear the grown-up people's feet still going past me in the street. And does it not seem hard to you, when all the sky is clear and blue, and I should like so much to play, to have to go to bed by day? And if we're going to hear about the stars and the evening, uh, we should probably hear about the moon, the summer moon. Emily Bronte, who died in 1848, wrote a little poem called Moonlight, Summer Moonlight. Tis moonlight, summer moonlight, all soft and still and fair. The solemn hour of midnight breathes sweet thoughts everywhere. But most where trees are sending their breezy boughs on high, or stooping low are lending a shelter from the sky. And there, in those wild bowers, a lovely form is laid. 
green grass and dew-steeped flowers wave gently round her head. Another woman, uh, almost contemporary of Emily Bronte, Emily Dickinson, uh, wrote a poem called Consulting Summer's Clock. And, big surprise for Emily Dickinson, it's a reflection about death. Uh, she's reminding us that many of us, at least, are closer to the end than we are to the beginning. Consulting summer's clock, but half the hours remain. I ascertain it with a shock. I shall not look again. The second half of joy is shorter than the first. The truth I do not dare to know I muffle with a jest. I often make the point in my talks and writings sermons that Augustine calls our fear of death, our daily winter, even when we are in the midst of summer, our fear of death can give us a little chill, and to hide from our fear of death, we will often create distractions, and that's what Emily, I think, is talking about in her little note about creating a jest about the truth that she does not dare to know. That was Consulting Summer's Clock by Emily Dickinson. Richard Wilbur is a modern and living poet, at least at the time I'm speaking. He was born in 1921, and right now he's still working. Well, he has given us a poem called Praise in Summer, and I think there is in this poem something of our penchant for getting things wrong because of the wounds to our human nature. Modernists might like this poem because it pulls down the supernatural to the natural and turns the order of things on its head. And Wilbur is, of course, working in the sonnet. The, the poem is in a sonnet form. He's working with metaphors, turning things on their heads. And then he critiques the whole thing. Now you can listen for some tricky use of the word instead, which he turns into a noun and modifies it with the adjective mad. And this mad instead is a comment, of course, on our use of language and images. But I also think about getting it wrong. And for my purposes, at least, I think I can... Uh, legitimately stretch his poem to be a comment even on getting the order of the supernatural and the natural wrong. So take that, you modernists. Here's Praise in Summer by Richard Wilbur. Obscurely yet most surely called to praise, as sometimes summer calls us all, I said, the hills are heavens full of branching ways where star-nosed moles fly overhead the dead. I said, the trees are mines in air. I said, see how the sparrow burrows in the sky? And then I wondered 
Why this mad instead perverts our praise to uncreation? Why such savors in this wrenching things awry? Does sense so stale that it must needs derange the world to know it? To a praiseful eye, should it not be enough of fresh and strange that trees grow green and moles can course in clay and sparrows sweep the ceiling of our day? A little Richard Wilbur turning things on its head, wrenching things awry, but in praise where moles are like sparrows that swim through clay and sparrows burrow in the sky and trees are mines that go down instead of up and it's all a mad instead an uncreation well that uncreation you know could be a, a way of talking about metaphor but anyway that's where i get this little thing about modernism and i'll shut up now summer's here I'm for that I got my rubber sand Got my straw hat I got my cold beer I'm just glad that it's here With that, I will wrap this up. Please come visit at the blog wdtprs.com What does the prayer really say? Actually, I'm slowly but surely shifting the name to be just Father Z's blog. But in the meantime, you can find it at WhiskeyDeltaTangoPapaRomeoSierra.com or just Google Father Z. That's the easiest way to do it. You can come and get involved in the discussions and use the donation button if you want to and do some more reading around this topic and hear some other podcasts as well. In the meantime, please pray for me as I will for you. 